Welcome to the Painless Podcast. It's Chris Hartwick from Painless Networking here. Goal for each Painless Podcast is to connect with and get to know great people in sports, events, startups, and cause marketing. We'll tell you a little bit more about today's guest, Tab Bamford, in just a sec. A quick business note, though. Painless Networking is hosting our first joint speakers event with the Emerging Chicago Sports Professionals Group the evening of April 20th. We have some great speakers lined up, and I promise it's not going to be the same old, same old discussion, boring panel uh, lameness. Head to uh, painless.network. It's painless.network, not .com. Get your ticket info on our sports marketing leadership session on Thursday, April 20th, coming up fast from 6.30 to 8.30 at the very fun Catalyst Ranch space on West Randolph. It's just 15 bucks to cover your basic costs, and that gets you some great conversation with sports marketing experts, a painless networking session, and it includes apps and drinks, including beers from the delicious Two Brothers Brewing Company. So head to painless.network for all the info. All right, today's guest, Tab Banford. Tab's one busy dude. He's built committedindians.com into a well-respected Blackhawks and hockey site. He's a frequent guest on sports radio, writes for too many blogs to list, and has a very large and engaged Twitter base at the one tab. That's T-H-E, the number one, T-A-B. He calls Twitter the sports bar of the 21st century. I think that's a great line. And uh, all that stuff he's doing, just a side gig. He works full-time for the good folks at Chicago-based Teamworks Media, most recently leading a partnership uh, to fruition with the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And it's focused on Latinos in baseball throughout baseball's history, La Vida Baseball. Check it out. It's a fantastic site and content, lavidabaseball.com. And we're going to talk about building up that site from scratch, basically, and uh, launching it in record time this past winter. So here we go, recorded March 23rd at the Teamworks offices in Chicago's West Loop. Let's get connected with Thomas Bamford VIII. We'll start from diapers tab. Oh boy, yeah. And not the thousands that you're changing every day in your house right now. <laughs> your own diaper. Yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the western suburbs. I'm one of those people who says I'm from Chicago and uh, only lived here for a couple weeks. Um, <laughs> grew up in the western suburbs. I'm a Hinsdale Central grad. Um, uh, family's been in Oak Brook, in the Oak Brook area pretty much forever. Grandpa started a church there. So uh, since the late 50s, my family's been in the Oak Brook, Hinsdale area. Back when it was just polo grounds. Literally just polo grounds. Right. <laughs> And where does where does Tab? What's that? Where does that name come from? I've it's never actually my that. initials. Uh, oh, I'm, see, I'm not smart. Got, enough. got, got a good English know. family, so I'm the eighth Thomas Bamford. The uh, eighth. The eighth. My oldest son is the ninth. The firstborn always gets to be Thomas, uh, but we've all got different middle names. And apparently, uh, my grandma was good enough at yelling Tommy and having half of the house come running that my dad was <laughs> just sick of it enough that I came home from the hospital uh, as Tab and have been that ever since. Uh, the, I'll just call you the Ocho the rest of the time. There we go. Probably never had that one I before. need a graphic. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put the creative folks to work here for you. Uh, now, siblings, I, I, I think you have a brother? Got one brother uh, who is two master's degrees deep and is currently uh, working on a PhD at Colorado Boulder. Oh, my God. Gosh, in what? Uh, in 
broad without getting incredibly deep. Uh, basically, communications. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he's he's fascinated by how words work, and I think that's uh, pretty unique in the bloodstream. It sounds like so, but he's more academic, and I'm more practice. Right. So, older or younger? Younger. Two years younger. Competitive growing up? Uh, I was very. I was. Uh, I was hurt. Somebody competitive. Uh, he was passive aggressive competitive. <laughs> I think that's true of any younger sibling. Uh-huh. As a parent now, I definitely see that. So, uh, but yeah, we we competed, but we also get along famously. So. And you grew up playing a lot of sports, right? Yeah, I uh, I played three. I, I played quarterback. Uh, was on the swim team and track team at Hinsdale, and, and played baseball and tennis on the side. So and, and then I played football in college. Yeah, that that so that was the next step after leaving Hinsdale Central. You went to Taylor, yeah, to play football, right? I did. And when you, you were a quarterback in high school, did is that what you were doing? Going to go do a Taylor? They recruited me as a corner. Uh, they watched me try to tackle, and watched me run away from people, and they saw that contact wasn't necessarily my forte. So uh, <laughs> they switched me over to running back. Actually, we we played in Europe for three and a half weeks after my freshman year uh, and with guys graduating and us not being able to take incoming freshmen we were down a little bit on manpower so uh, so by necessity I played running back on that trip and didn't switch back huh and then if I remember correctly from uh, the, the past that you ended up getting hurt before finishing off your eligibility so you, you still you 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 could still go back and, and play. You've got some eligibility. I, I, left, right? I do have eligibility left. Uh, so if there are any coaches out there looking for an overweight, uh, middle age, something on their roster, uh, I can certainly fill that role. You're the the super back. Yes. That of the next generation. <laughs> yes. You know if if, uh, if Scotty Pippen was a, a point forward. Uh, I'll, I'll call myself the presentation because I'm more of a power forward by weight and point guard by <laughs> ability to shoot. <laughs> so that had a lot to do with with where you went next was this injury, basically, right? Were you thinking of getting into coaching, just staying in sports? What? What? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, from there, you know, you don't play sports without being a fan. Uh, I loved playing everything growing up and. Um, actually went to school as a history ed major with the idea that I would coach football at some point. Um, but my first experience with self-awareness uh, was that I saw in myself a lot of what I hated in the the bad coaches that I didn't like playing for right. with as competitive as I was. So uh, I backed away from that idea and switched over to journalism because I just love being around the game. So after I retired, after three years, you don't quit, you retire. Um, when you retire, and I actually got uh, paperwork to go to the XFL Combine when I was in college. Still wow. have it. And so there's probably room for that on eBay somewhere. But, uh, yeah, so I, I retired after three years and actually get, jumped into the booth and did the radio broadcast, the color commentary for the local radio station that Taylor's Games were on and fell in love with the media side of things and, and went after journalism with a, a pretty hard passion for the last, well, really for three years in college, but practicing, I had more time to do it post-football. And then when you graduated, we were still pursuing journalism career, but you had to get a job that paid, essentially. Right, right? yeah, and and with the, the football announcing gig, the station liked me, and they offered to have me host a, an afternoon show, and as a 
22-year-old kid, you're like, oh, I'm going to have my own radio show. That's incredible. Let's talk about sports all day. How much are you going to pay me? And they said, like, 12 5 And after the gag reflex, I was like, God dang it, I'm going to have to move home and live with my parents and get a job. <laughs> that." So I made the, you know, this was pre-blogosphere, pre-social media. So it was a lot harder to, to you know, inch your way into the media game, especially in a city like Chicago. And so I made the, the decision that I would get a job that would afford me the ability to buy tickets and go to games instead of having a credential and going to them, which was heartbreaking, but I, you know, I still got to plenty of games. Well, there's, there is that I've many, many people that I've talked to, there's that fork and some people, they have the, the means, uh, and the passion and they pursue and no matter what the cost to stay, you know, pure journalism under or other kinds of sports marketing jobs. And then there's other folks that are going, well, I, I've, I've got to go pay the bills. Yeah. How did you keep the, not to be cheesy, but how did you keep the dream going then? You know, because from, from your first couple of jobs with a mortgage company and a, and a bank, a couple of banks, how did you satisfy, other than going to games, were you, were you still writing? Were you still you know, doing radio gigs on the side? Like, how did you keep that going? Yeah, well, you know, when the uh, independent media landscape quickly started to evolve, which uh, I would imagine was the internet version of islands being born, um, it, because you just kind of had this explosion of, of hot craving for fans to interact with fans. Because what makes sports talk radio so popular and so great is that every fan thinks they know more than a general manager right. and a coach and thinks that they're a better player than whoever they're barking at. Um, some UCLA point guards' fathers still think that way. Right. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it was one of those, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm calling in radio shows and uh, soon there started to be, a, you know, independent media websites looking for people who would write for him and a guy that I was on the newspaper staff with in college knew the guys that founded Bleacher Report and so when they really were just in their infancy stages uh, he shot me an email and said hey you know we've got this email chain that you know a bunch of us have been on for a long time we're sending like 400 word this is what's wrong with the Blackhawks or this is how the Cubs can fix it emails back and forth you know why don't you just write because you know that you're passionate about it and you love to write so why don't you do that uh, and so on the side just purely out of the sitting on a bar stool talking to the guy next to you passion for the game but I love to write as well uh, I jumped on board with Bleacher Report way early in the game I think they were four or five months old when I started writing wow. there um, and that kind of gave me a foundation to put a voice out there engage in the conversation and start wandering down the road of don't read the comments. Uh, but it, the, the idea of independent media being a viable property and being able to actually make money writing about stuff. And from there, it was just finding unique and individual opportunities that had money attached to them to start affording me the ability to transition my efforts and uh, time as much as I could away from finance. I didn't take math after my junior year in high school because I hated math. Right. And I was terrible at it. And if you get C's in school, why would you get a C in life? But here I am as a, you know, <laughs> financial commercial officer for a bank or helping people plan their investments. 
You wonder why the economy went down in 08. Right. <laughs> Case in point right here. While you were doing the work at the bank, like you said, it's the late in the summer of 2008, started following the NHL uh, or doing the NHL team leader piece for Bleacher Report. A little bit after that, Chicago Now, the daily Chicago sports tab around 2010 to choose Chicago. You've done sports blogging for them. Fourth period, that came around around the same time too, the summer of 2010. What's grown into, you know, you, you own this this property, the committedindians.com site, that also end of 2009, heading into that 2009-10 Blackhawks season. How did you balance that at the same time as as the job, and were you also married at that point, or about to get married? I mean, there was a, there, you had a lot of stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, there was right? a lot of stuff going on, and I think what's great about social media and, and the blogosphere is that it's finally a, a productive outlet for people with ADD. <laughs> and so um, the fact that I can't pay attention to things for more than 30 seconds helps me to fully focus on something for five minutes and then move on. Uh, but in all seriousness, yeah, I got married in, in 06. Um, first kid uh, came in 07. Um, and so in 2010, I was doing all of this media stuff uh, with second kid being born in December of 10. So, uh, But a lot of it was a function of trying to reinvent myself, hmm. trying to pull out of the finance game and really... Um, dive more hardcore into media and find an avenue by which you could, you know, make money doing what you wanted to do in the first place. And the reason I majored in journalism, uh, but you could make money without having to go work for one of the two newspapers in town or one of the two radio stations in town. And so uh, you could own your voice a little bit more. Uh, and that was exciting to me. And you can pivot with, you know, where the where the trends go. And so different writing opportunities gave me the ability to write about different stuff. Choose Chicago. I've written about soccer. I, you know, it's credential for the Ryder Cup. Those certainly aren't hockey or baseball or football. Right. Uh, different audiences, different media members to, to work alongside. But, you know, with... Uh, with the fourth period, that's a lifestyle hockey magazine. So I'm I'm talking to hockey players about what they do in their free time. Uh, so it's not box scores. And so uh, I think you know there's certainly an element of would love to be a beat reporter and be embedded with a team for a year. But there's also a, a inability to to cut your own hours and write what you want to write uh, without the the critical eye of you know the the sports PR group yeah. looking over your shoulder right. too. It's 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 liberating to be able to do that but uh, you know i we've we've had this conversation and having it with other folks as well like how did you develop your voice i mean i think some of it obviously comes naturally and you've got a little a little or a lot of this you know sarcasm and smartassness in you that naturally that's there was it reps or you know, did you have mentors that were giving you advice? Did you do a lot of reading of other folks and say, you know, I take a little bit of this, take a little bit from that? Where, how did this coalesce into this tab machine that it is right now, cranking stuff out? Yeah, well, it's actually it goes back to uh, my grandpa was a minister, and one of the things that he told me when I was younger was, um, you know, his 
sermons were broadcast on TV in Chicago, you know, starting back in the 70s. It was on the radio. So he was, you know, from a, a church perspective, you know, an early adopter in media in Chicago. And, you know, one of the, as I was getting older and realizing that there were trolls out there, uh, and people who don't like what people have to say, and you know, you go through that adolescent self-confidence issue. You know, one of the things that he always said was, "You can't be everything for everyone. Uh, so just be true to you. And if you're true to you, there will be people that that's good enough for. Uh, and if there are people that it's not good enough for, there are plenty of churches for them to go to. There are plenty of blogs for them to go read on." Uh, and so all you can really control is you. And when you allow the winds of change to determine your voice or mm. how you ad- approach subject matter, um, people will see through consistency. And I think w- as more comes out about the millennial audience and them wanting authenticity, I think that uh, staying true to who you are is something that's critical in media now. And, and keeping the main thing the main thing. That was what my grandpa always said. Keep the main thing the main thing. And that main thing is who you are and, and what you do. Um, and so really, for me, it was it, it is tough because there are times that people will be critical of you. There are times that people will be critical of um, an approach, uh, of, uh, you know, hot takes are easy to spill a, a dime a dozen. So... Uh, but if 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 you stick with what you with your guns, more people will respect you in the end than if you're like, oh well, if you if if you think I should, you know, there's there's Marty McFly's in the world, and and there are bulldogs in the world, and um, I think that w- with people desperately searching for authenticity and content, uh, staying firm in your approach is will win the day more times than not. Well, and so talking about like at, on Twitter, you've got a, a large following at the one tab, the number one tab. Go on follow tab if you don't already. But how many followers do you have now on Twitter? Uh, last time I looked at it, probably the neighborhood of 35,000. Right, right. It's a large number. Yeah. Now, I've, I remember correctly from conversation we've had that it was like getting to the first 10,000 is tough. Yeah. And then you get to that point and that number gives you justified or not but legitimacy that getting the next 10 happens seemingly feeling like overnight almost. But did you feel like you've changed a lot from when you first started? I mean, do you look back and go, oh God, you know, like a lot of people do go, oh my God, that was terrible. Or you're like, oh, I can see a lot of what I am now. Yeah, I I think, you know, obviously there's there's a maturation that happens over, you know, whatever. I think it's been about 10 years that I've been, been writing. So obviously there's a growth in, in your skills as a writer and your voice, and you become more confident. You know, when I jumped into the game, uh, if somebody would send me a topic to write about, sure, I'd dive in um, and be thrilled to write about the Chicago Fire, and I'd go have a couple beers and a cigar with somebody who played college soccer and figure out what the heck I was supposed to talk about because I knew it was a pitch and not a field and a match and not a game, and that was the extent of my soccer knowledge. So... Um, so I think there, there's certainly that, but I think there's definitely an element of you know who you are, and I think as your audience grows, there's there's a level of certainly being aware of responsibility. And I've grown up as a person, 
I'm, you know, I'm not a 26-year-old that's in a bar four nights a week anymore. And so uh, there's, a, there's a, a maturity that comes with the human that's typing. And then there's also a responsibility that with more people following me, you know, there are certainly times that I'm exhausted, but I still hop on Twitter because there's, there's an addiction level to the yeah. conversation. Right. And that, you know, wanting to be engaged, uh, again, with the ADD, I think social media was, was born from people wanting to pay attention but not having to, uh, to one person talking versus the overall conversation. But it is Twitter is the sports bar uh, of the 21st century. And so being able to jump into that conversation during games, whether you're at it or not, um, is exhilarating and, and fun. So, yeah, I mean, it just being part of what's being talked about is kind of the thing and then staying true to who you are. Again, you know, I've got people that will block me. Darren Ravel blocked me, and I don't well, know why, but yeah, well, I'm, I'm apparently not on the, the sports biz hot list. Well, that's, that's actually a badge of honor, I think, yeah. to most people these days. I've got days. it framed <laughs> in my desk. <laughs> should bring up the 100 Things Blackhawks fans should know before they die. That book um, from Triumph Books, first wrote it in 11, uh, 2011, was out, right? And it's been updated each time with a cup, so it's kept you busy. How, how much of that is you pushing, and how much of that was just bluntly you know, going along for the ride, and hockey was it in this town? Uh, you know, there. I, th- I think if you want to be in, you know, successful in anything now, certainly the the hustle principles haven't changed, but the the way that the hustle takes place has evolved. Um, you know, I I I was very fortunate to get credentialed for the 2010 Cup final, and networked my tail off. Certainly aligning yourself with quality individuals and organizations helps too. Uh, the fourth period is one of the more popular hockey magazines up in Canada. And so working with them opened doors uh, for me with a lot of the stuff that I do up in Canada and radio. Um, lining up with Chicago now being a Tribune property right out of the gate, you know, back in 09, uh, early 10. Chicago now had a couple hours of devoted airtime on WGN every week. And so if they wanted to talk about sports, they'd go to like the three or four sports bloggers at the time, which for baseball early in the game, like Julie DeCaro was writing for Chicago now. So they talked to her about baseball and they'd have me come down to talk about hockey, which if you're doing a new radio gig in Chicago in 2009 and early in 2010, that. That's a good way to get an every other week invite to go sit in the WGN studios right. downtown. So, um, but there was a, there was a hustle to it. Um, I was certainly doing outgoing PR on behalf of myself because you have to. Um, in the independent media space, you don't have the association of the Tribune coming alongside, or the Sun Times or the Score, ESPN. You don't. If you don't have that, some if you want people to care about what you're saying, you got to have an element of self promotion. But at the same time. Um, you know, in that staying true to yourself, you, you can only pimp it so far, and quality gets recognized, and you get invited back for stuff. Was there a, um, you know, is there any one thing or uh, episode, story, whatever that you point to, but that you can say, well, when that happened, or I wrote about this, that that was there was an explosion. There there have been a couple times that you know stuff went viral, and and it, I mean it keeps happening. 
and it's stuff that you totally don't expect hmm. to go viral. I think probably the first story that I had that really exploded uh, was um, I had a few fairly well-placed sources share with me that there were some issues bubbling up under the surface uh, with Ohio State's football program. And so four months before he was relieved of his duties, I wrote that Jim Trestle wouldn't coach a game at Ohio State after their bowl game. That was obviously well-received in Ohio because I don't live there. I'm not part of the Buckeye bubble. And so, you know, around Christmas time, I've got people tweeting pictures of me and my kids with the Stanley Cup telling people that, you know, here's his email, here's his phone number, go ahead and wish him a Merry Christmas kind of a thing. So that was a rough 48-hour stretch. Um, more recently, you know, I before, you know, during the playoffs, uh, you know, I, I was – you know, a couple cocktails in and thought that it would be a funny thing to start a change.com petition to have Bob Euchre in the booth for the World Series. And that kind of became a national story, even though it was butchered by most of the people that <laughs> didn't try. I think the New York Post reported that after the third game of the World Series, an Indians fan decided to launch something because of the coverage. Like, all you did was look at the date and who started it. Like, right. if you click on the petition, you can see that it didn't start in the middle of the World Series from someone in Ohio, but that's the New York Post. Sources are as good as they can find. <laughs> so uh, so there have been a few times that stuff went viral, but a lot of it is, uh, you know, just m creating and maintaining relationships with folks. I think that it all comes back to being authentic. And if, if your voice in how you write and how you tweet and how you Facebook is superficial people see through it and if how you engage with people in the inner person i mean i'm looking you in the eye right now and if if i'm full of it you'd know that and so just if if you can stay true to who you are and what you do uh more times than not people will respond well and and you can but it's a lot of work to maintain relationships with a lot of folks now that you've gone through this we've you know, we've both talked about not necessarily being the biggest word, a fan of the word, you know, side hustle or whatever. But I mean, it, it is what it is. Having gone through this in, in the infancy of social media, um, certainly things have changed, but you've seen it through all that change. You, you know, I'm sure you get hit up by people uh, for advice or, you know, how do I get started? Or probably even, can you give me a job? What's a best piece of advice that you give to people that are, you know, and it could even be, I'd also be thinking of people that kind of in your situation that are not just 21 years old, just out of school, but 28, they hate their job. And they're like, how did you do this? How did you find the time? How did you make this happen? How did you make your voice, create your voice, own your voice? What do I need to do? Is there any one thing that you go to? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I tell people is whether you want to be in media or anything, um, whatever you are passionate about, whatever gets you going in the morning, uh, whatever has a smile on your face when you go to bed at night, the world has evolved enough in the last 20 years that odds are you can find a way to make a decent living doing something that you love. My wife is a high school teacher and she loves working with kids. Um, there are, are folks that are passionate about finance. 
I got a good friend who's an actuary. I don't get it. Yeah, right. I, I would rather, you know, slap myself in the face for three straight hours with a cardboard box than do that. But he loves it. Like, that's his, right. get, that's his right. jam. So uh, I think the biggest thing is I just, I, you know, I'll go back to Taylor or I'll, you know, have other schools that will reach out to me to talk. And they just say, figure out whatever you love to do and do you and and you know do a lot of homework and how to make money doing that because it isn't obvious all the time um but there are folks who write books about being a sarcastic mom <laughs> you know th- there's a lot of ways for you to make money in the world today uh and if anyone is doing something that is depressing it, it it's tough because there's something that makes you happy so go do that and find a way to make money doing it i mean that's the good and bad of what's out there is everybody has a voice so you can go chase it and the problem the other side of it is everybody has a voice and like you said the trolling and stuff is out of control i'm actually talked about julie DeCaro. i'm going to talk to her next week uh and her get her take on it and as a woman it's it's on it's unreal some of the stuff that people will say behind the screen name you know is there anything that you can you do with dealing with that crap personally you know i do pay attention and it's not easy to pay attention um it can get under your skin pretty easy when people are saying stuff about you um the other reality is that uh if they're saying it to their audience and their audience is 18 people then 18 people who you have never met and didn't care about before they said it and won't care about in five minutes uh, might hear what one person's opinion of you is. And so just having that uh, awareness that, you know, there's a limitation to the audience. And personally, uh, my thinking with, with, with trolls is you can engage them or you can, there's a reason that there's a mute and a block button. Right. Um, and sometimes people need to be put on blast, uh, but other times by retweeting something or by chirping back at them, if you've got you know, 20 or 30,000 followers and they've got 100, um, you know, if, you, if you've got a bunch of matches that are on fire in a field, it's not a big deal. But if you spray gasoline, the fire will find each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you amplify a troll's audience and they're like-minded people, um, you don't have to look very far in our society to see how, you know, people who think ridiculous junk can come together in big numbers. <laughs> um, and so uh, I just, I, I don't, by and large, I don't engage um, because I don't think that it's worth the headache and it isn't, you know, if someone's got a hundred followers and, and they want to be a troll, I don't think that it's worthy of, of my audience being brought into it. So I, I just, I, for, for the most part, I just don't engage with it and let it. And has that changed with a little bit of, we talked about the maturity factor, but a little bit of age and experience that you, you would, you used to go off on those folks and then now it's more measured just because. Oh, hell yeah. Okay. When you know when I was when I was just getting on Twitter, if somebody wanted to dance, I'd turn the music on and it would, <laughs> you know, break the glass and let's go. You know, I, I think you know you go there. There, <laughs> I look back ten years ago or whatever, eight years ago on Twitter, and you know it, it was, 
you know, the fight scene in Anchorman. Everybody's <laughs> out there with a trident and a grenade. Say, who's and carrying like, the trident? What the hell's going on here? Uh, and now, you know, I think that it's a little bit more measured. But part of that is, you know, when you're trying to establish a unique voice in the space, you, you try to, you know, create a persona and live to who you are within that conversation. Uh, and, yeah, you know, there there was certainly a, a lacking level of maturity, you know, in your mid-20s when you're jumping into it versus being in your mid to late 30s and, and not caring as much about whether or not people like what you're saying about their pro- favorite professional athlete. If If LeBron doesn't like me, that's not a deal breaker for me. Whereas, you know, when you're just getting in, if Jay Mariotti tweets that you're an idiot, that's, well, that's a badge of honor just another like right. blocking you. <laughs> Terrible example, yeah, but, right. you know, I think you, when you're trying to jump into the media game, you take more to heart early on than when you're 10 years deep and have an established audience and followership. All right, well, let's shift gears a, a, a little bit, but, I mean, it, it's, it ties in that I, I guess I'd say about... Four years ago, you came on board at Teamworks Media, community manager as the first role, and morphed into business development manager here. And Teamworks does a lot in the sports space, so it, overlapping with some of your contacts and interests and all those things. How did you end up you know, land over here at Teamworks? And I yeah. say over here because we're sitting in their, their beautiful loft offices here yeah. on, on West Washington. In the fabulous West Loop. Uh, yeah, really, so... Um, the career path from finance to where I am now with the nine to five has a paycheck attached to it. Um, now wait, I'm going to walk in and tell, or we'll make sure if Tom and Jay are, are, are listening from Teamworks that, that they're going to hear nine to five and they're going to need to talk to you because I know it's not nine to five, but anyway. Right, yeah. The, the corporate the, gig or the whatever. Day, yes, the day job, the have to put pants on and leave the house day job. That's so. That's what my wife. That's my another wife. thing they might not say. Is I don't know if you put your pants on when you come in here yeah. either. But hey, not always right side forward either. But um, so the when the market went south uh, six months after getting a nice promotion in a pretty office up in Deerfield and big fat raise, the market went south and the bank that I was at at the time decided that they were going to eliminate like seventy percent of their business group. So the best and the brightest just got promoted, got punted like a half flat football, and. And that's when I really invested 100% of my time into, um, you know, really going after the media thing. I love to write. I love sports. Why would I be miserable in finance? It, it goes back to whatever you're passionate about, find a way to make money. And I feel like I've, I've lived that. And so that's why I feel like I can legitimately look kids in the eye and say that it's a reality. But after a few years of writing, uh, my wife said, hey, honey, you need to get a real job. You can't be in the man cave all day anymore. You can't be... Like kids would apply to be an intern at CommittedIndians.com, and she'd be like, "What are they going to cut your cigar and bring you coffee?" And I said, "Well, yes. If the school gives them credit, we'll uh, we'll actually put that in the job description." Um, so I actually I, I jumped back into the fray. I actually went back to work for a bank. Uh, gag reflex again, but it was uh, it was as managing social media for a national bank and. I was uniquely positioned with my history in finance and understanding every nuance of the financial services game, having done everything from insurance to mortgages to financial planning to commercial real estate to be able to write with stuff with authority. Um, But I also understood the social media game enough that 
I understood the metrics and, and how to plug in in the different areas and what different audiences were going to look for and, and carving out a niche. Uh, and so I did that for about a year uh, and saw a job posting at Teamworks Media that they were looking for someone to come in and marry everything that I was doing, which was creating content, developing a content calendar, planning and, and executing strong content and social together. Uh, and the irony is that it was for a business entity, but had nothing, or a sports entity, but didn't have anything to do with sports. <laughs> uh, I was brought in. Uh, Teamworks has produced great video content for the Big Ten Network for a long time uh, around a campaign called Live Big, uh, which celebrates research, innovation, and philanthropy that goes on across the Big Ten with alumni, faculty, students. And so they were looking at adding an online component to it. And I was like, look, Big Ten Network, I love Big Ten schools. I didn't go to one, but um, until you know, a couple days ago, we had a Taylor grad coaching the basketball team down at Illinois. <laughs> uh, so I've thrown all of my orange away. I'm right back to purple. Um, good, good luck to Chris Holtman and Butler in the next couple days. Another Taylor grad. But... Uh, <laughs> But it was the idea of engaging in content and, and owning the social was what I wanted to do. And so it was really transitioning back into working for an agency, but creating media for what you could call a legitimate bona fide media entity. And, and so with that, you know, we grew an audience. I developed the, the full content strategy and started creating and maintaining relationships from a more frequent, we were doing, you know, two or three video pieces per school, and now we're doing two to three per school per month. Mm -hmm. So the volume of interaction with all, when we started 12, now 14 universities, was a lot different than what we were doing from a video side. And so finding a way to navigate the politics in individual schools, much less the entire conference, was a lot. So um, jumped into that. Uh, it got off the ground, and it was going well, and there were other opportunities uh, with Teamworks Media that we were looking to grow and do some some business stuff outside of, you know, the core group of clients that we were in. And, and I was starting to do some dot connecting a, around other opportunities beyond that. And so they eventually uh, replaced me on the, on the Live Big project for the Big Ten Network uh, and had me focus more of my efforts on new business. And that leads us to, like you said, of connecting the dots. Tell us about this... Um, um, I mean, I, I love it. I call it amazing. I think most of you, if you check out La Vida Baseball, of, and just in its infancy now, we're, what, we're March 23rd today recording this interview. So La Vida Baseball has been launched for 22 days, yeah, really. Weeks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and already the amount of content, uh, not just quantity, but the quality of it is, is amazing. So tell us, tell the folks listening is, how did that come about and then what what's especially then leading into the last few months has been insane been trying to get this podcast together since december and travel and, and getting this thing off the ground has kept that from happening so tell us how how it came together in the first place is a great story and then then the the logistics of actually bringing this thing to life yeah so without you know, giving full cliff notes and leaving all the good stuff out, but without making this a five-hour conversation. Um, I, I do a lot of writing about hockey. I love hockey. I think it's it's the it's fun. It's fast. It's every best part of football and and soccer and uh, and basketball all at the same time. 
love hockey. Um, but I played baseball growing up, and baseball's always kind of had a, a unique spot with my heartstrings. Uh, and uh, and a lot of people that have known me since I was you know eight or nine years old know that baseball's kind of been my deep dark passion but i hate math so when analytics became a thing it became harder for me to figure out what a war was but baseball's always been a passion for me i love history i love the game uh, i love the present i think we're looking at the best young crop of talent in baseball right now that we've had since the early 50s when mantle and mays were were breaking in and so as i was looking for new opportunities uh, and, and starting to explore some different media properties that were out there uh Teamworks had uh, was looking to do a documentary uh, about uh, the story of Jorge Pasquale, who was a, a Mexican businessman who, uh, through his efforts to treat people fairly and engage with both Latino and, and black and white players on a level playing field in the Mexican leagues in the 40s uh, and 30s, kind of accelerated the integration of Major League Baseball. So Teamworks had the rights to his story. I read the book, and great story, lots of sex appeal to it. But doing a standalone documentary about a businessman who, you know, pre-World War II doesn't have a whole lot of street appeal. And baseball is something that I think is the biggest niche sport in the U.S., and I think that they need to understand that. And so as I was looking at ways for this to possibly get marketed, I, I'm looking around at the National Baseball Hall of Fame's website, and they've got, the, uh, you know, they've got some information about Latino players, and they've carved out some niche space in the museum talking about you know, Latino baseball history, whether it's in the majors or abroad. And so I, I, I cold-called Cooperstown, and said, I would love to talk with you guys about engaging around the theme of Latino baseball passion, past, present, and future, and creating content for the quickest growing market in the game. If you look, there's stats that come out from organizations every other month now that talk about the Latino audience. Pew Research has their own website devoted to it. In sports, though, most of what you see when brands are looking to target uh, a multicultural audience is it defaults to soccer. And I've actually had brands tell me that it feels, and it is cliche, that if you want to reach a multicultural audience, you just default to soccer. Well, there have been Latino players, whether they be Cuban, from the 1880s in Major League Baseball. They were, you know, The first Puerto Rican actually played for the Cubs in the 40s. Uh, and so Latinos have been part of Major League Baseball for a long time, but their stories don't get told as well or as frequently or to a big enough stage. And so as this conversation started with, with the Hall, they totally understand that when you look at the game today, uh, Latino fans are more likely to go to multiple games in person a year than other demographics. 60% of U.S. Latinos that were uh, surveyed by ESPN self-identified as baseball fans which is a massive number. Um, and then you look at the field. Uh, you look at the teams on the field, and you see Javi Baez play a quarter season for the Cubs and then be the co-MVP of the NLCS last year. And certainly uh, you look at the World Baseball Classic, and the game is, is evolving. And when you see conversations percolate up in the game as, as a whole, the macro conversation is starting to become overwhelmed by uniquely Latino themes. The international draft was huge when we were looking at the, putting the new collective bargaining agreement together. 
uh, when Aroldis Chapman gets traded to the Cubs and doesn't have a translator, suddenly you find out that when Ichiro came over, every team, if they signed a player from Asia, it was mandatory that you had $50,000 earmarked for a translator for the individual player. But in 2016, you don't have Spanish-language translators in every dugout. We still don't have accent. We're still not spelling guys' names right. We don't have accent marks on the backs of jerseys. Uh, and so the, the conversation on the macro with baseball is becoming increasingly Latino. The fans in the stands are becoming increasingly Latino. And the, the guys on the field that are performing so well, Miguel Cabrera, Jose Abreu, these storylines that are coming across are, are so rich, uh, but they're not being told by, you know, with a Latino voice uh, to that audience. And so the conversation with the hall was around how do we own that? thought leadership and how do we really jump into that space but not just stick a toe in the water with an exhibit in the brick and mortar within our four walls but how do we really change the dynamic for a hall of fame or a museum uh, and create something that's dynamic and really speaks to what the hall of fame is about which is celebrating the greatest individuals and stories in the history of the game uh, and it isn't the history of the game with baseball is different it isn't no one knows who Bill Russell is anymore, and nobody realizes who Walter Payton was. Uh, people still talk about Mike Trout through the lens of Mickey Mantle. Baseball is just different. But the Latino parts of the game haven't been told as well. And so, you know, a couple years of conversations with the Hall, Pedro Martinez gets inducted. You know, all of a sudden there's 30,000 people from the Dominican Republic in beautiful, quiet Cooperstown, New York. Uh, this year, Ivan Rodriguez is, is going to be inducted, and, and the Puerto Rican flavor that we saw in the World Baseball Classic will descend on Cooperstown. And so as the conversations grew, it just became more and more painfully obvious that not only was this something that made sense for the hall, but it was a gaping hole in the media landscape. And really for brands, uh, a way to... Uh, less expensively engage with a, a multicultural audience than soccer, which is becoming cost prohibitive, and, and align yourself with the gold standard of the game, the Hall of Fame. And so uh, here we are, you know, fast forward through a few, as you said, really backbreaking months of, of getting the right individuals on, on staff, getting the right team together, uh, getting the going out to Cooperstown to work with their artifacts, which if you're a sports fan, having someone hold, hand you a baseball bat and tell you that Babe Ruth hit a home run in a game, I don't care if you hate baseball, you get goosebumps. Yeah. Um, but aligning with the gold standard of the game, getting the right people in place, getting content, a fully birthed media company off the ground the, has been a lot of, of fun, but it's a, it's a ton of time. And you say, you know, Tom and, and, and Jay here at Teamworks might laugh at nine to five. It's more like five to nine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's a lot of work. Uh, but again, it goes back to what I said earlier. It's what you're passionate about. Right. And, I, you know, I love sports and, and baseball is at a place like I think really more than any other sports. Hockey and baseball have a crop of young players in the game today that we've never seen that talent level across the league. Uh, and that's what excites me. And, and so well, birthing a, a media company has been a lot of work, but it's been a passion play. And I'm not alone in that regard. But it's the, in, in baseball in particular, as much as to me, as much of, as ever, and you would know the numbers better than I would, but it's of those young athletes, like you point out, the majority of them coming through are... Latino ballplayers. 
And so to be telling the story of the guys who came before them uh, makes perfect sense. That's one part of it. And you've got the convergence also of brands are dying to get in front of this audience, like you said, authentically. And too many older white guys making the decisions in the, in the C-suites at companies are like, okay, well, I guess it's soccer. And that's it. That's all. The, the conversation has stopped there. So to do that, that's a game changer. And then the third piece of it is, is that museums have been so set on being the museum and being all about drawing people to the museum that to me, I think this is brilliant on the Hall of Fame's part to invest in this before somebody else does. It's a great story. The timing is right. It's going to actually benefit the museum. These people are looking at that as actually better to draw people to the museum, to what the museum does, to baseball, to baseball's history. As a director of development, that you're getting, you're having a fairly easy time of people answering the phone or, or getting back to you, right? You'd like them to just send the check, but, <laughs> but I mean, I'm sure that there's a, a hundred percent receptivity out there. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the big thing is that I think the museum space right now is going through it a very, in Chicago, it's easy to draw a parallel to what the museum space is going through. And it's, it's where the Blackhawks were at 10 years ago. Um, Bill Wirtz didn't have games televised at home because he felt like it was going to diminish the product that was viewed in person. And it, the audience that showed up wasn't exposed to all of the incredible stuff that was happening there because they couldn't see it from afar. And if people can see it from home and they're excited by it, doesn't matter what you're doing. You could be the Field Museum. You could be Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. You could be... Uh, monastery in rural Florida. It doesn't matter. If people see something that intrigues them, there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that people will get in their car or on an airplane and they'll go see it. Um, and there's still a thirst for real understanding of who we are and where we've been and where we're going. And so history is becoming more critical in America than I think we I think we've taken it for granted for a while and now I think people's lenses are becoming wider for uh, engaging with it and appreciating its importance and so yeah with you know museums I think still bank on you know we and have financially uh, limited themselves to thinking about what we can what can we do with the 300,000 people that physically come through the door a year the National Baseball Hall of Fame has you know, roughly 300 350,000 people a year go through their doors we've you know one of the pieces of video content that we created has been viewed 160,000 times mm -hmm. so when you look at the the difference of being able to engage hundreds of thousands of people a month digitally versus 300,000 people a year mm -hmm. in the brick and mortar, um, you know, certainly, you know, like you said, we were three weeks old, but there's, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence in the marketplace that being able to engage with people digitally brings butts in the door. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, right now it, it's an exciting time for us to look at, you know, the museum space, you know, how can we benefit other, especially in the sports landscape? Um, and, you know, it isn't just museums. You know, I think, you know, there's plenty of building going on in Chicago. Uh, there are parallels to recruiting in college athletics. Uh, not everybody can drive to Chicago and stay a night to see DePaul, but they've got this incredible new arena. So how are you representing your brand both internally and then 
externally. Right. So there's there's lots of ways that this can can parallel, but at the end of the day, you know, the lion's share of what I'm doing is working with the Baseball Hall of Fame and LaVita Baseball to make sure that the quality of the product is something that's on par with what the Baseball Hall of Fame stands for, uh, and then engage with potential sponsors around the idea that baseball's trending up, and you look across the board, there's a lot of conversation right now about basketball being down. Uh, with football, you know, and r- kids getting into footballs dropping significantly every year. Baseball's one of the hot games that, that's actually trending up, and the national pastime is having a tremendous renaissance right now, as we've talked about. And being able to engage with that hot trending sport that ever, you know, it's baseball, Chevrolet, apple pie, mm-hmm. that's America, but there's more, it's America's game, plural. America's with the, you know, the apostrophe after the S, not before. It's America's game, and being able to engage with a game that everyone is familiar with and associates with, but through a completely different lens is something that has a lot of uh, really strong appeal, and being able to, again, not go after a multicultural audience by defaulting to the cliche. Soccer is something that a lot of brands are, are finding resonance with. The museum piece is going to be very interesting. I'm going to talk to Mark Lapidus, who's left. He was with the Adler, a CMO at, the Ad, at Adler, and now he's off to to uh, start the National Sports Museum or mm-hmm. attempt to start that here in Chicago and using sports as the teaching tool. And now with interactives and, and uh, you know, opportunities online and kids' interest, combining that with kids' interest in sports, I mean, that's how you talk about math. I mean, the only way I learned division and, and you, you know, war probably, like for me as well, probably too much. But how did I learn a lot was reading the baseball stats and trying yeah. to figure out, well, how does a baseball batting average work? How does earn run average work? How does the slugging percentage work? That's how I learned division and percentages. And if I didn't have that, I might not even know what a you know percentage sign is at this point. Your example, the Blackhawks is a great one that you go and you go with your kids and they put that that montage up on the board, and I'm getting chills about it, thinking about it now, but watching the old-time hockey, but I mean, watching those old clips of Makita and Hull and Esposito and on and on and on, back older and newer, it's great for me as a fan. I experienced a lot of that, but then my son's like, well, wait, who is that? Or what's that? Oh, that's really cool. And they get into it, and then now they're more aware of both the history and gives that some perspective on the present day. All teams, all sports should be doing that. And I think that's why this, one of many reasons why the La Vida stuff makes just so much sense and is going to be a, oh, I was going to say a grand slam, but that's, that's way too cheesy. <laughs> At least you didn't call it a sacrifice bunt. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's definitely going to be more than that. Um, anything, you know, anything else with that, that I, may, I may have missed that you'd want to touch on around La Vida or even, you know, just other stuff that you're, that you're working on right now? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think what, what fascinates me is in the great thing with us being able to engage with such a large audience and have the gold standard of the game with us. And, and really when you look at the macro in the United States, politically and socially kind of hitting a hot button with what's trending on the macro and within the sport, both, you know, there, there, there's a truckload of opportunity for, um, sponsors to, to engage. But I think what's great about the relationship with the Hall of Fame is that 
uh, we're able to be, you know, fairly selective. And I think this comes back to that, what we started talking about, which is authenticity. And so we don't want to make this newly birthed media property look like a NASCAR. I think a lot of websites will lose user experience by overwhelming itself with logos and ads and pop-ups and all that other crap that just drives people nuts. Really what's unique about what we're looking to do is we're not looking to slap logos all over the margins and make this thing look like a NASCAR, but we're looking to strategically align with brands that make sense and that have a story and brand messaging that really works with what Levita's about so that this marriage that we enter into with a sponsor partner, it's not just give us money and we'll put a logo. It's a sponsor partner, but we're going to craft content that's authentic to what the brand's about so they can share it and it doesn't feel like tokenism. And that's what's so critical about being true to what Levita is and really what the Hall of Fame is about is, is crafting those unique narratives. And there's so much that we can work with. Uh, and so that, you know, really one of the tricky things right now when we're looking at, at lining up and, and finalize who, are, who our sponsor partners are is making sure that we're aligning with the right brands yeah. and, and setting ourselves up right for success in those relationships. Because, again, we're, we're, we're not going to have 75 people engaging with us. We're looking for the right maybe maybe a half dozen does it. And so... That's that's where, but not certainly not paying rights fees, MLB style. Like we're we're cost effective, which is huge for us. We've got the gold standard of the game, the Hall of Fame with us. That's huge. We've got quality content, which is huge. I've got no problem wearing a hat or a t-shirt down the street because the stuff that we're putting together is awesome. The the team that we've hired to to bring authority to the subject matter is unparalleled. So I, I couldn't have more confidence in what we're doing. It, human, I don't think it's humanly possible to be more uh, confident in what we're doing. So when you're looking at development and, and be establishing strategic partnerships, uh, the fact that we can be selective is huge. And, and it, it's tough because we're looking for the right people. Uh, but we're, we're excited about the possibilities of both in, you know, some, some big players in Chicago, but also, you know, nationally and that's what took us so long to get these microphones together was right. was getting in front of the right brands and making sure that we are aligning ourselves appropriately with brands that are really committed to what Levita's about all right tab bamford thank you very much for joining me on the painless podcast thanks for having me hope you enjoyed my chat there with tab thought it was excellent and uh, pretty insightful if you like this episode, make sure you subscribe to the Painless Podcast. And as you scroll back in the feed, check out and listen to some of the other great episodes we've had so far. All eight of them are terrific. Most recently, the voice of the Final Four, Gene Honda, McDonald's Head of Partnerships, John Lewicki, also TK Gore from CSN Chicago, and Spikeball's Chris Reuter are other really excellent uh, episodes that I think you'll enjoy. Any feedback, send it to painlesspod at painless.network. And don't forget to buy your ticket now for April 20th. Find the ticket link at painless.network. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. Until next time, it's Chris Hartwig saying, stay connected, friends. Ooh.